Let's pray again together. Father, we're so grateful we can gather in this place with your people, sing praises to you, to hear your word preached. I pray, Father, that now your spirit would come and help me preach your word, and I pray your spirit would be at work in our midst, molding us, forming us, shaping us more and more into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that your word would be implanted deep inside of us and do a, a good work that we desperately need. Father, would you be with us now? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let's jump in now to a passage we just read from 1 Peter. It's one of my favorite passages probably in all the New Testament. I've been thinking about it a lot over these last several months uh, as our country has faced just a set of unprecedented hardships and challenges. I want to begin our time today in God's Word by having us think about a famous quote from a famous literary work, Dante's Inferno, a poetic work written in the 14th century in Italy. It's one that many of us probably were supposed to have read, at least in an English class uh, at some point. This quote comes from a scene when the narrator comes to the gates that lead to hell. And as he comes through the gate, he sees something inscribed, written on the gate itself. He sees the words, abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Abandon all hope, ye who enter here. Now, if you've ever read Dante, his, his work is clearly uh, not a place we're going to build our theology on, but his words capture really well the spiritual ethos of everyone outside of God's people. Bleak hopelessness. What we're going to see today in God's word is really the same statement, but given to us in reverse to those who are Christians. What God would have us imagine seeing written over the doorway of this building as we walk in to gather each week, I think would be the words, rejoice in your hope, all you enter here. Rejoice in your hope, all you who enter here. So our passage today is really all about hope. It's about the nature of our hope as God's people and how our hope has the power to transform the present especially the suffering that we feel right now in the present. In the midst of our chaotic world, in the midst of our world that often feels depressing, our passage today tells us where you can find an anchor for your soul. It gives us our glorious assurance about the foundation of our future hope. So let's dive now to the passage that we read just a few minutes ago. Let's hear what God would have us, uh, hear what he have us say today. So our passage starts with a doxology of sorts, a declaration of praise in the form of this blessed be statement, proclaiming why God is worthy of our praise and adoration. Peter begins this letter in a way that's very similar to how many of the other epistles are written in the New Testament. Very often you see at the very beginning of the epistles this phrase, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These two names go together throughout the New Testament. That's a detail it's easy to gloss over, but it's something that is very theologically significant. The writers of the New Testament repeatedly pair together God the Father and God the Son as a way of proclaiming what Jesus himself said, that he and the Father are one, that if you've seen him, you've also seen the Father. And so in the second half of of verse 3, Peter quickly unpacks for us why the Father and the Son are worthy of our praise because of what they have accomplished on our behalf. Peter starts by mentioning how God, according to his mercy, has caused us to be born again. 
So verse 3 is really all about how God brings life to the dead. Everything Peter says in this verse is permeated by God mercifully bringing new life. Mentioning that God gives us uh, a new birth. He says this new birth comes with a living hope that's been secured by Jesus' resurrection. Again, an act that's all about God bringing life where there was once death. And you can really see the unmerited kindness of God clearly on display in God's sovereign act of bringing new life to his people. Contrary to what many of us would like to believe, none of us come into this world on the basis of your achievement or your own work. Now, obviously, we come into this world weak and helpless. All of us receive life graciously as a gift from the hand of someone else. That's the circumstances of, of everyone's natural birth. And our natural birth is really meant to give us a picture of what our spiritual birth looks like. We receive God's own salvation as a gift that he in his mercy chose to bring to us despite the complete lack of anything you have done uh, to deserve the gift, to secure this gift. We could spend really considerable time talking about the nature of this new birth that God brings his people. We could talk about when that happens or how exactly that happens. But for the sake of time this morning, I want us to look at what Peter emphasizes here. And it's really what flows from the new birth that God has given his people. What's the result of it? What is the goal of it? Where is it taking all of us? Peter's going to mention three things that we're going to unpack this morning. He says this new birth that God has given his people has brought us hope. It's given us an inheritance. And it's also given us a reason to rejoice. A hope, an inheritance, and a reason to rejoice. So what I want to do for the rest of our time together is really look closely at each one of these three things that Peter mentions. So first, Peter mentions that we have a living hope. He says in verse 3, according to God's great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What's really clear for Peter is that Jesus' resurrection was not simply an historical event in the past, although certainly it was that. But it was about how believers in Jesus in the present have a hope that continues to be sustained because of the reality of Jesus' resurrection. One biblical scholar, a guy named Ed Clown, he says this really well. He writes that Peter's mentioning, quote, a hope that holds the future in the present because it's anchored in the past. Our hope that God is currently at work in the world, putting all the broken things back together. A hope that culminates in Jesus coming again and bringing this process to completion. All of this rests on the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. As Ed Kleine just said, our hope for the present and the future, it really does all completely rest in the historical event of Jesus' resurrection. His resurrection is our greatest assurance and guarantee that Satan and sin and death and decay, they're not the ones in charge. They're not even the most significant characters in God's story in our lives and in the story of the world no matter how much our culture wants them to take center stage. Jesus' resurrection and the living hope we have in him also means that God's life will ultimately always triumph over sin and death. This is what Peter saw and experienced himself when he peered into Jesus' empty tomb on the first glorious Easter morning. He saw with his own eyes that the power of God had triumphed over the forces of evil that had conspired against Jesus and his people. 
And he must have understood, if not initially, then certainly later, that God's enemies had been defeated in this decisive way. And the triumph of Jesus' resurrection would empower a once cowardly Peter and the other disciples so that now they're able to risk enormous suffering and sacrifice for the sake of Jesus and his gospel. When we think about this word of hope for us, how Jesus has secured uh, this victorious hope through his resurrection, we can immediately begin to see why this is a good word for us right now in our present circumstances. In the midst of a world where people need to hear good news. Because there, these are times when clearly our society, our country, we're consumed with fear and anxiety in the face of all the uncertainty, in the face of all the unrest that we face right now. We live in a culture that is constantly telling us around the clock to feed our fears. And it's amazing, isn't it, that no matter how much you feed fleshly fear, it always wants more. It's never satisfied. Our social media platforms, sadistically enough, actually benefit from the seemingly endless headlines that contain stories of the suffering and the sickness and the death and the deep civil unrest we see all around us. Social media apps actually have algorithms, mathematical formulas that are used to feed us more and more of the content that we click on. And so what happens? The more we fill our minds with the headlines of doom and gloom, the more fear we feel. And so what does our social media do? It feeds us more stories of death and misery, which in turn only gives us more fear, which accelerates the cycle. And all this really creates just a never-ending feedback loop of despair for us. There's actually a word for this. I learned earlier this year, doom scrolling. Have you, have you heard of this word? It's real. Uh, I, I do this all the time. Doom scrolling is the negatively reinforcing behavior of going really from one depressing headline to the next on our digital devices. And really what fuels this is the false sense of control that you're grasping for by thinking that the knowledge given to you by your technology, it's going to somehow soothe my fear. It's going to soothe my anxiety. And so our terrified world needs hope in the midst of everything that we face and all the fear that we feel right now. We need to know where our hearts can finally just rest and be at peace. And only the gospel will provide the answer to this, specifically the world-changing news, that you have an eternal hope in the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. This means that God's life in the end will always triumph over the sin. It will always triumph over the death and the suffering. And so God's people should never be people who are defined by despair. This means that we can and we should grieve the pandemic. And all the loss of life that it's brought, the economic devastation it's brought. But we as God's people always have an immovable hope, even in the midst of our grief. The living hope of Jesus being raised from the dead and the subsequent promise that he will completely restore our world to the place we long for it to be. Notice how Peter describes hope in our passage. He calls it a living hope. I think he uses this word because he understands that all the various dead hopes that the world is constantly trying to sell people. 
We live in a world that's clamoring for hope. But because it doesn't look to the gospel to find it, our world is constantly producing people who are filled with anger and disappointment that comes when you put your hope in sinking sand. Whether it's our political leaders or the advances of science and technology or a stable economy, our culture is constantly peddling false hope to people. And so what Peter does in verse 3 is to tell us the only place where the Christian is to place his or her hope. Our hope and the hope of the world rest completely on an empty tomb, on Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And because he has been raised from the dead, we have the promise that God will certainly make all things new. And that the sin and the death and decay of his present life, this will not be the end of our story. Because he's defeated death and he will never die again, our hope is grounded on something eternally secure. Our hope is alive because Jesus is still alive. And we must see that any hope other than this is a dead end for us. That's the first thing we see in our passage uh, that Peter wants us to see, that we have this living hope because of the new birth God has given us. What else does he say uh, that we have? He also says that we've been given this eternal inheritance. This concept of inheritance was important for Israel, and it shows up really all throughout the Bible, throughout the Old Testament, uh, to start with. The story of God's people in the Bible really begins with them being put into a place a beautiful garden sanctuary in a land called Eden that's brimming with life. And Adam and Eve's tragic fall into sin can really be understood as an act of rebellion that results in them being disinherited from this place. In choosing sin, our first parents willingly rejected their rightful inheritance of being in this perfect place and having a perfect relationship with God and each other. And so really the rest of the Bible is about God fulfilling his promise to raise up a seed of the woman who will defeat evil and restore the inheritance that God has destined for his people. So as the Old Testament unfolds, God's people are repeatedly given promises of an inheritance because they belong to God's family. In the Old Testament, a specific piece of land is promised to God's people, and we see God's people conquer, then settle in this land as the story of the Bible progresses. The incredible truth that we see revealed in the New Testament is that the land of Canaan promised to Israel in the Old Testament was just a type, it was just a shadow of a much greater possession that God's people will inherit in the future because of Jesus' death and resurrection. Later in 1 Peter, Peter is going to make it clear that the church inaugurated by Jesus and then the apostles is God's new Israel, God's chosen race his royal priesthood, his holy nation gathered from people from all of this earth. The New Testament gloriously teaches us that God's people are not just given one piece of land in particular. No, our inheritance is something much greater than this. It's the whole earth. It's a recreated earth. It's a new heavens, a new earth, the earth that we all long for. Peter tells us that this glorious inheritance is right now being kept in heaven for us, that God right now is actively watching over it. He's guarding our eternal inheritance until it's fully revealed when Jesus comes again. If you read the end of the Bible, we get glimpses of what the day will be like when our inheritance is finally granted to to us. We read this breathtaking vision of our final inheritance, and in this climactic scene, what you see is heaven coming down to earth. And our earth becomes the place where we behold God's glory for all eternity. 
and we worship and enjoy him forever. So really the final story of our inheritance is really not about God blowing up the world and beaming us out to heaven. No, again, it's about heaven fully and finally invading earth so that our world becomes the place that we've all longed for it to be. Okay, so how exactly does Peter describe this eternal inheritance for us? Notice he gives us three words to describe it. He highlights the permanence and the purity of God's inheritance to his people. He first says that it's imperishable. It's something that death can't touch. He says it's undefiled. That is, it's not going to be touched by evil in any way. And he finally says our inheritance is unfading, which is another way of saying saying that it's not going to be affected at all by the passing of time. Peter's telling us the same thing throughout the New Testament, especially in the teachings of Jesus, that God's people have been given an eternal treasure that cannot die. It's infinitely good, and it will never fade. This is an inheritance that makes all the other treasures of this passing life ultimately look very fleeting and insignificant. This is the inheritance that Jesus has in mind. When in Luke's gospel, he says that we're to give to the needy and provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. So what Peter tells us here when he describes our, our heavenly inheritance is what we can bank on in the midst of a world that constantly seems to be changing, a world where the things we love come and go, where the grass withers, where the flowers fade, and even one day, yourself, your memories, are all going to fade away. The good news about what Peter says in verse 4 and 5 is our eternal eternal inheritance in the gospel. It's never going to change. It's never going to fluctuate like the stock market or unemployment rate. God's future final work of redeeming our eternal home, it's the only thing that's a sure bet for us. It's the only thing that we can put all our hope in. Peter tells us that God's coming inheritance for his people, it can never be touched by the ravages of time. It will never be depleted by death or decay that we experience. And again, this is good news for us, precisely because of all the uncertainty that we face right now and we feel. Being sure of our future heavenly inheritance also means that, as we've just said, we have no inheritance. We have no ultimate security in the present world that we live in. COVID has made us face, as a church, I believe, hard truths that have been easy to ignore and not really think about until now. And one of the hardest truths I think we've had to face is that our income, our economy, our health, the health of people you love and care about, and so many other important things, these things are not presently secure for us. They are fragile. They are susceptible to change. They are things that we can lose. And they are really far too fragile to hold your hope. And even as we trust God's promises by faith, living in a world that is not really our home, it's always going to produce in us a certain kind of restlessness. A significant part, I think, of anxiety that we feel is legitimate comes from the fact that you will never be completely safe or comfortable in our life until we get to see the future that you are presently living for. Between now and whenever we get to see Jesus face to face, this world will never be the refuge that you long for. It will not be a safe haven for you. And that's unsettling if you really believe that. 
But we have to tell the truth about this. This is not something we should run away from or avoid. Everything we see, everyone we know and love is somewhere in the process of going back to dust. Outside of a Christian worldview, that's a truth that people work very hard to avoid and to downplay in some way or to mitigate. But only Christians have the courage to describe the world as it really is. But our faith, again, is the only thing that keeps us from despair when we tell the truth about that. The eyes of faith are always looking at our world and we're always taking a long view of things. A view that's able to see the past and the death and the decay and all the things that we have to go through in light of the future. In light of the glorious climactic ending of God's story that he's writing for our world. Believing by faith that our future and the future of the world is going to be eternally good, this should produce a variety of things in our lives. It should make us patient people. We're able to be patient because no matter how painful or distressing our present is, we're very certain of God's infinitely good future that's ahead of us. Part of the problem, I think, with the current hysterical rhetoric that we currently see that saturates all kinds of people, both on the left and the right, is the notion that the sky will fall, that the world as you know will be over if our enemies win in the present. Far too many people, even people within our conservative evangelical camp, would have us think that our entire future existence is at stake in every election or in every major cultural issue. And if you believe your entire future is at stake in the battle with your enemies in the present, then you will likely be someone who does culture war from a place mostly out of fear and rage. But trusting by faith that our future inheritance of resurrection and restoration is certain, it should give us enormous clarity. It should help us see what is at stake and what is not at stake in our current culture wars. And the good news of what God is saying to us is that nothing is at stake right now in the present that has the power to threaten our hope in the future. And so God's church can and we should be patient if we fix our eyes on our future hope. And it should also make us hopeful people in the midst of a culture that is all about doom and gloom uh, that we're bombarded with all the time. No matter how difficult or distressing our circumstances, Christians really should be the most optimistic people on earth. And our optimism doesn't come from closing our eyes to all the pain of the world, but from our faith in God's promises about the future, that in the end, everything really is going to be okay, even infinitely better than okay, even as we have to endure the pain and the tears and the struggle of our present life. Martin Luther, someone who knew all about enemies and a lot of suffering, said this really well. He actually wrote some words on First Peter. Listen to what he says here. He says, be patient. And remain steadfast. We shall be repaid indeed, and that richly for the small damage Satan can do us. After this little poverty, this small contempt, and this short-lived sorrow shall follow the eternal heavenly riches, glory, and unspeakable joy and blessedness, compared with which all the suffering uh, and evil that oppress us are not worthy to be mentioned. I love what he says uh, there about our hope. 
Okay, let's move on now. Let's talk about the final thing that Peter tells us comes out of this new birth that God gives us. We've talked about a hope and an inheritance. The final thing I want us to see is we have a reason to rejoice. We have a reason to rejoice. Looking at what Peter says in verses 6 through 7. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, that is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There are several things here that Peter is saying. First, Peter tells us we have a reason to rejoice now, even as we grieve. He says that because of the hope of our coming eternal inheritance, we're able to experience joy even in the midst of our present suffering. He says we're able to rejoice, even though if now for a little while, if necessary, we've been grieved by these various trials. Notice how else Peter describes our suffering by mentioning that God deems that we should suffer for a little while. Right? For most of us, we understand that suffering is going to last longer than just for a little while. So how can Peter describe our suffering in such a way? In my counseling work with people, I regularly hear stories of people who are uh, harmed in such profound ways as children that they still feel the effects many, many years later. So it's important to see that Peter doesn't use this phrase because he wants to downplay the reality of our pain in a fallen world. Instead, Peter uses this phrase to make a very important point that when we compare our present suffering against the backdrop of our coming future, our coming eternal glory, that our suffering no longer looks the same. It no longer looks so overwhelming. Nothing puts the suffering of our past and our present in perspective like holding it up against God's coming everlasting pleasure and glory that's coming for his people. It's exactly the same thing that Paul's going to say in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. He says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. It also strikes me about the language that Peter uses here is the emotional complexity of our faith, that we are capable of both joy and grief simultaneously at the same time. Peter says that we rejoice in our future hope even as we grieve right now in the present. Joy and grief are not opposites, according to the Bible, like we so often think. Robust biblical faith includes both, and it never makes us choose one or the other as we suffer by faith in a fallen world. And often as Christians, we can feel pulled uh, towards more towards one than the other. Some of us, maybe often, uh, uh, we're in church circles where we can feel this unspoken, subtle pressure to just be happy all the time in a way that just kind of feels dishonest. The implied message here is that uh, if you really had faith, you would just be smiling all the time. You would never be sad. You would never grieve. You would never be angry or anything else that involves a painful emotion. And if you do these things, then maybe your faith is a little weak. Or we've also been a part of churches that have the opposite extreme. The notion that faith is all about being authentic. It's all about being honest. Even if that means wanting to cultivate your negative emotions all the time in a way that subtly glorifies despair. 
This may look like faith, but this is really just as spiritually shallow as the Pollyanna, Jesus makes me happy all the time kind of faith. So the truth of verses 6 through 7 has enormous power to transform our perspective and our experience of suffering and frustration that we all feel right now in the present. It's just one of many places in the Bible where we see God's redemptive intentions for our suffering, that there's always purpose in our pain, even if those purposes must be grasped by faith and not by sight. And one of the purposes that Peter mentions here is this purifying power of enduring suffering. We must see that God has us endure suffering presently in our lives with a particular goal in mind, with a particular destination that he wants to take us to. Peter mentions this purpose in verse 7 when he says we've, uh, we've been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of our faith, more precious than gold that perishes, that is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter is saying that God brings about suffering so our faith would finally one day reach its goal. The day when we will be openly commended when Jesus comes again, when we see him face to face. Peter mentions that the various trials we face, it will be a part of God bringing about attested genuineness to our faith. And he uses the analogy of our faith being like gold that's tested by fire. People of God, if we can embrace our suffering by faith, we can begin to see it as a necessary part of reaching our eternal destination. Peter says that the genuine faith, real faith, is a faith that is willing to suffer in order to get to the glory that we're destined for. And suffering really has an amazing way of revealing things, doesn't it? Do you want to know what are the things you love the most? Who are the people you love the most? Do you want to know what your deepest convictions are? You can discover the answer to all these things by asking yourself, what are you willing to suffer for, to achieve. And so Peter is saying that we can know joy now even as we suffer in the present and that we do this by focusing our eyes on God's promises about the future, by fixating ourselves on this day when we see the Lord Jesus face to face. And in that day, all the humiliation of suffering and sin, it's going to be over And we will receive this overwhelming experience of glory that's hard to even imagine now. People of God, our faith will shine like the brilliance of pure gold that has been purified through a lifetime of struggle and pain. And we will receive glory and honor, glory and honor that will only redound the glory of Jesus, just as Revelation 4 shows us when the saints in heaven cast their crowns at the feet of Jesus. And God wants us now in the present to be able to hear clearly by faith the coming future words of divine affirmation ringing in our ears. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. People of God, if we're willing to endure all the various trials and our suffering in the present, this will be the day that we experience together. Do we live every day in light of this coming day? Do you see and believe that the glory of this coming future day, it will be worth any suffering that we go through right now in the present? Let's pray together. 
Father, we praise you for your word. We praise you for our glorious hope that we have in Jesus. Father, in the midst of a world um, that is full of fear and despair, I pray that we would be people that have a renewed sense of where our hope is truly found and that we would share that hope with our neighbors, our friends, the people we work with. Father, would you empower us to do these things by your spirit, for your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.